Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 1. We're going to look at the Beatitudes this morning, uh, as they're called. We'll come back to what they are in a minute. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus is speaking. It's early on in his ministry. He's gathered the disciples uh, together, and they've gone up a mountain. So the disciples are listening, and also the crowds are there, kind of in the background, eavesdropping. So I'll read from verse 1, chapter 5. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Children, I need to start this morning by apologising. Most weeks uh, I do a sheet for you to help you uh, follow along. Uh, This week I haven't, but if you've got a piece of paper at the very top of it, one thing that might help you as we start looking at these Beatitudes is drawing a picture of an oasis. I wonder if you know what an oasis is. I'm not talking about the kind of block that your your mum sticks flowers in, but an oasis in the desert. An oasis, children, is a little area of the desert that is full of life. So amongst the, you imagine the arid sand, the rocks, uh, the mountains and the valleys. But then seemingly in the middle of nowhere, there's a little pool of life. There'll be a a pond, a, a little lake. You can imagine the palm trees growing on the edge of it, uh, the fish teeming, other wildlife, perhaps birds and beasts coming to drink, a little pocket of flourishing life in the middle of a desert of death and barrenness. Now, the reason I want you to draw an oasis at the top of your sheet is that what Jesus is describing in these Beatitudes is a flourishing life. Life is hard, isn't it? The world outside is cold, dark, and scary. There are all sorts of things that make life tough. But what Jesus describes here in these 11 or 12 verses is what a life that is flourishing in the middle of the tough desert of life would look like. Uh, With apologies to those of you who are here last week, uh, we said that This word blessed that begins each one of the Beatitudes. This word blessed is is a particular Greek word that has that sense of flourishing. We said last week there are two words in Greek, the language of the New Testament, that end up as blessed in English. One is the the, the word that is about God approving something, where he he speaks a good word over you. This, This is my blessing on you. The opposite of that one is curse. You can be blessed by God in his favour or cursed under his judgment. 
But that, that's not this word. This word is that flourishing word. The opposite of this word is woe. And later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will speak some woes. It's the word used in Psalm 1 to talk about the tree that flourishes as it grows by the stream. Hence that oasis picture again. In other words, again, Jesus, when he says blessed is this kind of life, he is not simply saying God approves of it. Although, of course, God does approve it because this is God himself speaking. But, But also this is truly the way life is meant to be for those in Jesus's kingdom. This is, as it were, the good life. Now, as we'll see, that doesn't mean it's an easy life. It certainly doesn't mean it's a life without suffering. But hence, all the more, we need to realise that this is oasis life. This is flourishing life. This is the good life. Every advert on TV and in the magazines wants to paint a picture of what life flourishing would look like doesn't it that's the whole point of advertising if you could just buy this wear this have this then life would be good i wonder as you start 2022 whether you've got a picture of what what the good life would be like there used to be an advert went on for years and years and years it was it was about kind of gravy or stock or something like that and it it would evolve over the decades but essentially at the heart of it was a family and, and one member of the family would come in and they'd be cold and wet outside and usually mum had been cooking and he would smell, perhaps it was the dad, he would smell the food and, and be, ah, ah, that kind of noise. It's that good life, that flourishing life. Adverts try and tell you this is how to be blessed. Jesus says, no, this, listen to this. And like an oasis, Jesus' description of the good life is going to be about flourishing and life, but it's also going to be unexpected. We began to see that last week in the first three Beatitudes, where we said that the, the Christian life, the blessed life, is about being a beggar, not a buyer. A beggar, not a buyer. Children, again, imagine going into the city centre uh, sometime next week and walking around and thinking, who's really doing well here? Who's, who's flourishing? So you see uh, the businessman come out on his lunch break in his smart suit with his briefcase, uh, then you see uh, the, the wealthy uh, retired lady coming out of John Lewis with shopping bags under every arm and someone trailing behind her carrying parcels. And then you see a guy in a sleeping bag huddled in the doorway outside the station. Who's flourishing? Who's doing well? Well, of course, the businessman or the wealthy woman, not the beggar. And yet Jesus says... Here, it is a life of begging that shows you're flourishing in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the empty, in other words. Blessed are those who mourn, who are grieved by their sin. Blessed are those who are meek, not proud and confident in themselves, but who come to God knowing they're empty, not full. It is a beggar's life, the Christian life, which is great news, isn't it? It means we don't need to come to God full and flourishing in ourselves But, and here's the whole paradox of the Beatitudes in action, we flourish as we come to Jesus saying, I'm empty. I have no life in myself. So if the first half of the Beatitudes describe the the flourishing life, the beggars, uh, the fact that we should be beggars, not buyers, rather, 
The last few that we're looking at today, well, they describe the beggar's life. We're really going to focus on verses 7 through 11, the second half. And there's a move from kind of who we are in the kingdom to how we should live. Very roughly, that's how the the Beatitudes split in half. And so each time as we walk through them and just touch on each one relatively briefly, what I want us to do is think about how, how we approach this as a beggar, not forgetting the first half of the Beatitudes, in other words. The Beatitudes, you'll see each time a phrase in a similar way, blessed are, and then there's a description, and then there's a result, for they shall, and there's some sort of reward. But remember, this isn't if you do the first thing, then you will earn the second thing, like putting money in a fruit machine, uh, or sorry, in in a vending machine and getting out a Mars bar or a packet of crisps. Do this, God will reward you with that. No, it's more sort of subtle than that. We've already seen throughout Matthew's gospel that being saved, being brought into the kingdom is a gift of grace. And for those who've received that gift of grace, Jesus now describes that begging life and encourages us to flourish more and more in it. In other words, these are not just commandments. Be merciful, be pure in heart, be a peacemaker, though, of course, they are that. If Jesus tells you this is how you should live, then you should live this way. They're not just commandments, though. They're also invitations. They're also telling you not just what you should do, but what you get to do as someone in the kingdom. It's both and. Both you must do this. Of course you must. This is Jesus talking. But also you get to as someone who's been saved, who's received as a beggar, received Christ. So we're very simply going to walk through each of the remaining three or four, slightly depends how you count them, Beatitudes, and see how God has given us all we need so that we, it's not just a case of should obey the commandments, but we now can obey the Beatitude. Let's dive in and hopefully, if it hasn't made sense so far, it will do when we see them in action. Let's start with the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, verse uh, seven, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy and grace so often go together in the Bible. Often they're synonyms, one is exchangeable for the other. But when they come together, mercy and grace are sometimes distinguished in this way. People describe grace as God giving us what we don't deserve. And mercy as God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And so straight away, you have to ask, well, well, what do we deserve? Well, we know we've rebelled against God. We know we're sinners. We know we haven't loved him as we ought. We know we haven't loved one another as we ought. And so we deserve to be treated fairly by God, don't we? We love the idea of fairness. But if God treated you fairly, he would cast you into hell. That would be justice. That would be justice. Jesus, in other words, ought to have come down from heaven, looked around, and said, Father in heaven, treat Phil, treat Emma, treat Zacchaeus, treat the grieving widow, 
Treat Lazarus, treat Mary, treat Martha. Treat my disciples, treat them fairly. And if that had been the son's prayer, the father would have answered by raining down fire from heaven, opening the earth and swallowing them up. That would be fairness. After all, Jesus was the one sinned against, wasn't he? He is the Lord God. He had every right to come down and condemn. He was the one mistreated. Until we see, until we understand, until in the bottom of our hearts we believe that would have been fair, then the gospel is very likely to have no real grip on our hearts. It's not going to be very wonderful to us. The whole idea of showing mercy will begin to be one that we think, well, it's kind of our due. But if mercy was our due, what we deserve, then it wouldn't be mercy. We don't like talking about sin particularly. Uh, We certainly don't like talking about judgment. But without it, the idea of God being merciful makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. The gospel makes no sense. Why did Jesus come to die? If God could have just sort of shut his eyes and... No, we needed mercy. And thank God Jesus came full of mercy. He saw us in our sin and in our misery. Mercy in the Bible is directed both at sin forgiving sin, but also at misery. Just the chaos and darkness and brokenness that comes as a result of sin. And you will feel both in this world. You are a sinner, but also at the same time, lots of suffering in your life. It's not, it's not one-to-one directly attached to your sin. You get ill, not because you thought the wrong thing last week or sinned in some specific way most of the time, but because the world is now fallen and broken. You are sinned against by other people. Even if actually in that particular occasion you really hadn't done much wrong at all. We suffer sin and misery in this world outside of Eden. And thank God Jesus comes to show mercy to us in both states. He showed mercy to us in our sin. Uh, Even on the cross, he was able to pray, Father, forgive them about the very ones who were drawing life from him. Uh, He also showed mercy to those in misery, the widow who wept after her only son died and Jesus drew near in compassion, that the leper who'd been driven out of society because of his skin disease and Jesus walked over and touched him. Time and again, Jesus showed compassion on those in misery as well as on those in sin. Jesus lived out this beatitude, in other words. He is merciful beyond measure. And therefore, he calls his people to like to be likewise, to be like him. Blessed are the merciful. You are called, brothers and sisters, to show mercy. Show mercy to others when they're in sin and when they're in misery. Sin, hopefully, it's obvious, isn't it? You have received such grace. You've been forgiven far worse than you will ever need to forgive. Children, do you remember Jesus told a paragraph, a paragraph, <laughs> a parable about exactly that? It was about a household. And in the kind of middle of the household was a senior servant. He wasn't the master, but he was somewhere in the middle. And he owed his master a great debt, thousands and thousands of pounds. But he couldn't pay it off. 
And so he went to his master and asked for mercy. And the master was merciful and forgave him his debt, said, that's fine, forget it. Meanwhile, the lowest servant in the household owed the middling servant just a few pence and went to him and said, look, I can't pay it. Please, will you forgive me? And the senior servant said, not on your, not on your life, no chance. He'd received forgiveness for a huge debt, but wouldn't show mercy for a small one against him. And the master of the household moved in anger against that unmerciful servant. Let me ask you, are there people in your life you just will not forgive? Are there situations in your life where you're saying it would not be fair for them to treat me like this? Therefore, I will not show mercy. Are you demanding justice for yourself whilst at the same time wanting mercy from God? We we function like that, don't we? It's as if there are these two worlds. There's the world of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And when we're the sinner, we're the one doing wrong, that's the world we want to live in, the kingdom we want to live in. But when we're the ones sinned against, there's this other world of law and justice and fairness. And suddenly, it's not fair to treat me like this. And so I shouldn't have to put up with so-and-so. But just a minute, why should God put up with you? He does so because he's full of love and mercy. You have received far more mercy than you'll ever, ever show. And again, remember this mercy is not just to those who sin against you, but to the suffering, to those in misery. All the commands of Jesus, all the descriptions of the Christian life, we've said time and again from the front over the years, are not just commands, but invitations. They're not just what we ought to do, but but what we now get to do. Jesus is saying his disciples, his followers, are now those who are able to show mercy, who will show mercy. Think of the misery. Think of the misery. Uh, People cause you suffering in your life, don't they? They disturb your peace. They make life hard for you. And we think, look, why should my comfort be disturbed why should i have to go out of my way to relieve their suffering why don't we why don't we help those in need because we think it's going to make our life less good don't we the oasis is going to kind of get a little bit less flourishing the tree leaves are going to dry up a little bit we think going and helping those in suffering those in need is going to turn down our quality of life getting involved with messy people difficult people that that is that is not a flourishing life but when we remember when we remember that we have all the mercy in the world from the lord god that all our miseries are going to be dealt with finally one day and removed, that then our blessedness is not in danger. It's not threatened by losing some money as I help someone who's got themselves into debt. It's not threatened by losing some social time with the friends that I really like hanging out with whilst I go and hang out with people who are perhaps just a little bit more difficult. Uh, 
It's not threatened by staying up in the middle of the night to look after the kids and losing a night's sleep because all the blessings I need are there safe and secured for me in Jesus. And therefore I'm not losing. My flourishing life is not being dialed down, turned to black and white when I go and show mercy to others. Perhaps think to yourself, where in particular are those you could help in need at the moment, those in need of your mercy? It might be in your family, in your marriage. It might be uh, around church. You spot the person who's on their own after the service. It might be at work, on the street. Who knows? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed, secondly, are the pure in heart. Purity in heart here. It's kind of that sense of single-mindedness one-heartedness again it describes jesus beautifully jesus did not have a divided heart half living for himself and half living for god but was a hundred percent sold out living for the glory of god in full obedience to him his heart was pure like crystal water out of the out of the mountain now we know our hearts are more like muddy puddles don't we in reality but his was clean And yet again, looking at you, covered in muck and grime, he was willing to come down and rescue you. He became unclean for your sake. Although he'd never even thought about desiring to sin, he said on the cross, Father, treat me like, well, like them. Treat me like the centurion who's crucifying me. Treat me like the prostitute who who washed my feet a few days ago with all the perhaps dozens of men she'd slept with. We're repelled by muck, aren't we? Children, do you, do you hate, well, actually, some of you children love getting mucky, actually. It's sort of maybe a really bad illustration. Um, but, but once you grow up, you really hate getting messy. Okay, you wouldn't want to step in dog poo, would you, children? It's horrible. It's, it's mucky. It's disgusting. It, it, there's all sorts of things in life that make us go, ugh, and recoil. Mess, muck, dirt, filth, grime. For Jesus, he was so pure in heart, so holy, that sin repelled him far more than any kind of vomit and sludge and slurry and muck repels you. There are some things in life that you will just step away from. The stench makes you sick. You physically recoil. Jesus was like that with sin because he is the Lord God in the flesh. And yet he was willing to take your sin on his shoulders, to be treated as if it was his for your sake. And then he calls us after him, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity matters, holiness matters for my followers, Jesus is saying. He's not, I think, saying you must be sinless. He can't be saying that, can he? Purity in heart cannot mean blessed are those who have not a single sin. We know that from the whole of the rest of the Bible. For now, between now and heaven, you will always be corrupted by sin. In fact, no one thing you ever do think or feel will be without some spots of dirt on it. Because whilst the penalty of sin has been paid for by Jesus, the presence of sin hasn't been removed from you yet. So purity of heart can't mean not sinning at all. We also know that because some of the commands Jesus gives his disciples are to repent of sin, to ask for forgiveness. In fact, he's about to give the Lord's Prayer in a few moments. Uh, Later in the sermon, at least, not today. And one of the prayers, one of the lines of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. It is obvious Christians still sin. So purity in heart is not 
Jesus saying, if you are totally without sin, then one day you shall see God and go to heaven. Cannot be that. But the characteristic demanded by Jesus here, the lifestyle of flourishing he invites you to, is that single-mindedness. I want holiness. What do you dream of? What do you dream of? If, If you could picture the ideal life in 2023... Or if you could picture this day in a year's time and look back and see the difference between your life now and your life then. What, what, what one thing would you like? Again, the advertising agencies say, well, a bit more money, a, a new watch, a, a new top, a new car, a new gadget or, or gizmo, a new house. Jesus says holiness, growth in holiness. That's what you really need. It's so easy to see Again, remembering these are flourishing, descriptions of flourishing. It's so easy to see Jesus' commands as things we, we kind of have to do. They're like the small print, but they're not great. They're kind of, okay, if I must. And so we think that, I mean, sin is the, the most fun way to live, the best way to live. But Jesus says, I, I can't do it, so I suppose I, I mustn't. A sin is like the chocolate cake. It's actually the really tasty thing, the thing I really want to do, but I kind of know long-term it's bad for me, so okay, I'll eat, I'll eat the veg. Jesus is saying here, no, actually, flourishing, fullness of life, that oasis-type life, is a holy life. It is just a better way to live. Holiness matters, but also holiness is a way of flourishing. It is how you're built to live. Students, many of you are kind of coming to a stage of life where you're suddenly having to take loads of decisions. Okay, you've, you've gone through education, then the next step's all been pretty clear. And suddenly you tumble off the end and, what am I going to do with my life? What is the will of God for my life? Well, one thing is crystal clear. In fact, Paul says it just very bluntly in the letter to the Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, children, just means becoming more holy, more like Jesus. We fret so much about career and where we should live and houses and spouses and all sorts of other things. And understandably, okay, these are big deals. I'm not trying to belittle them by any means. But we shouldn't ever think they're more significant to God in God's eyes than, a, well, than our growth in holiness. Called it far rather you're a holy plumber than an unholy baker. The career matters not so much. The holiness really matters. Again, a command and invitation. It is possible to live out this beatitudinal life, this blessed life, because Jesus has given you the power of the Spirit. You're no longer under the, the, the kingdom of Satan, under the kingship of Satan. You're no longer enslaved to sin. But rather because Jesus has given you his Spirit, that has been broken. You can now obey. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, is there any better description of Jesus than the peacemaker? He is, in Isaiah's words, the prince of peace. There was no peace between us and God. But again, so merciful, so full of love was he that he came down to make peace as he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so, again, he calls us to walk in his footsteps, be a peacemaker. Not just a person who doesn't start fights, 
but someone who makes peace once they've started. And again, Jesus' salvation, the gift of Jesus, makes this possible. The beggar who is poor in spirit, who comes empty-handed and who the Lord God gives Christ to, is someone who is able to be a peacemaker. Why? Well, again, I think it's because they're not threatened anymore. There's nothing they need to grab onto. Why do we fight? Whether it's on the huge level of wars or just squabbles in between housemates, fights in marriage. Why do we fight? We fight because something we want is threatened and we're worried it's going to be taken away from us. Or we see something we want that's not ours at the moment and we grab it illegitimately. In other words, they both boil down to the same thing, which is I am going to fight because at the moment my flourishing is being threatened, either by someone taking something from me or by the fact that I've not got something that they have. Life can't be good until I have this. This thing is the key to blessing. That happens in families, happens in churches, doesn't it? I can't be happy in a church unless the children's work is done as I want it to be done. I can't be happy unless the music is like I want the music to be. It's usually the music, isn't it? Martin Luther had a line, when the devil fell to earth, he landed in the choir. <laughs> it's almost every church, the, 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 the fighting begins about music. Not in ours, which is great, but you know. <laughs> All the other churches, yeah. But again, we approach church life and it's, it's about me. I need to be blessed because I like the music like this. I like small groups that work like this. I like discipleship programs that work like this. I like services that are at this time. I like sermons that are of this length. I like, on and on you can go. And underneath it, deep down, we're thinking, I'm not going to be blessed until things are like I want them to be. And so frankly, I'll fight about it. Out goes the emails, out goes the gossip, out goes the text, out goes the recruiting of a faction. You know, the classic kind of, um, if you, if you've, I'm sure this happens in all sorts of walks of life, not just churches, but it definitely happens in churches. People say, um, oh, can I just talk to you? People are saying that. Like, oh, cool, who? Well, you know, people. Yeah, you is what you mean. <laughs> You're saying that. We fight. Because we think the blessed life for us is being threatened. But when we look at Christ, he has blessed us in every way. And so I've no need to fight. I can express my opinion, of course. But if my husband or wife disagree, or if circumstances just mean that I don't get what I would quite like, I don't need to fight for it. The baby wakes in the middle of the night. You're both awake. You've both tried the whole kind of, let's pretend I haven't heard it. Uh, I'll pretend to be asleep. It's not working. You both know you're awake. What's going to happen? You're both thinking, I deserve a night's sleep. You're both thinking, I did it last time. You're both thinking, I've got more important work tomorrow. You're both thinking, the blessed life for me is to stay here. This is what I deserve. And so you're willing to start the fight. When you think, just a minute, my blessing is secure. 
my flourishing life is secure in Christ, then losing a bit of sleep doesn't matter. In fact, more than that, it must be that the way God is blessing me now is with one less night's sleep. That must be the blessing for me. It's weird, but then Jesus' blessings are weird. It must be, I'm so confident that God is for me and has blessed me in Jesus, that it must be he wants me to get up in the cold and go and deal with the screaming baby. That's funny, God, because I would think blessing would be staying warm under my duvet and snuggling up and going to sleep, but you're the really good one, not me. You're the wise one, not me. You're the merciful one, not me. You're the source of blessing, not me. So it must be getting up and dealing with it is the blessed life. So off I go. Again, you'll be able to think in your own situations. I've plucked an example totally at random. (laughs) Finally, very quickly, blessed are the persecuted. We haven't got time to deal with this in any depth. Verse 10, blessed are the persecuted. It gets repeated again in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you. Who was the kindest man who ever lived? Who was the gentlest man who ever lived? Who was the most gracious and merciful man who ever lived? And what do they do to him? They suffocated him to death on a tree, stripped naked, whipped, thorns rammed onto his head. Well, just as with the king, so with the citizens. If they persecuted me, says Jesus, they'll persecute you. This life of flourishing will involve suffering for Jesus' sake. It's so tempting to think if, I, if I'm just kind and gracious and merciful, then everyone will like us. There are a whole kind of mission strategies that are based around showing how nice we are. And then, of course, everyone will want to become Christians sometimes. But you're not going to be nicer than Jesus or kinder or more loving or more gracious or more merciful. And they killed him. So this flourishing life won't necessarily be easy, but it will be blessed. It is, remember, the oasis in the desert, the beggar's life. And so I don't need to panic when the world persecutes me, when family members who don't believe reject me. I don't need to think that somehow life has gone wrong. Instead, I can remember that the one who was persecuted beyond all measure, Jesus Christ, against whom stood not just the earth, not just hell, but eventually even heaven itself as the father punished his son for the sins of the world. The one who was persecuted beyond belief is the most blessed man ever. The one who now reigns in glory. And his life is a pattern. Perhaps this year will be hard. But if it's hard because you're following Jesus, it is blessing. Or perhaps one of these Beatitudes particularly hits home for you. Perhaps one of them speaks to your life. Perhaps you're aware that in some way you fall short. Let's finish where we began. In many ways, the whole Sermon on the Mount points back to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you see a deficit in your life, that the idea is not to run home and start trying to make peace between two people in the street who've fallen out. The idea is not to run and desperately forgive someone so that you can get the blessing in return. Rather, it's to go back to God and say, I am nothing, but you are everything. Help me. Forgive me. And the great promise of the gospel is he always will because he's given you Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we want to live this flourishing life. Uh, We want to be those who 
uh, honour Jesus in our discipleship, but we confess that so many of these uh, Beatitudes are very challenging to us. So please fix our eyes this year on all that you have given us in Christ. And as we see that, we pray that he might become both our example, but also our confidence. Might we be so confident of the ways you have blessed us, so confident that you are for us, that we're able to let go of our reputations, let go of our rights, let go of our perverted desire for justice and fairness, and instead be full of mercy, full of forgiveness, pure in heart, and willing to suffer for his sake. Bless us in this way, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.